Right. I'm here today again with Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy is um, one of the few investigative journalists um, actually covering COVID, COVID issues, vaccine issues. Um, he's been writing about vaccine issues for a long time, actually, and uh, recently came out with, so So, when did this actually launch, your, your book, um, The War on Informed Consent, The Persecution of Dr. Paul Thomas by the Oregon Medical Board. Um, welcome back to the show, by the way. And Tell us, tell us, uh, when, when did this come out? Uh, a week ago. It was, uh, August 24th. Okay. okay. So for just not that long ago. Yeah. And, and I started reading this. So you sent me a review copy and then, um, all chaos broke loose over here. So I got through about a third of it and very, very impressed. This is, I think it, this is not just the story of Dr. Thomas. This is really the story of, the um, medical freedom movement as it exists today. It's it's the story of the roots of that movement. Um, so for anyone who, you know, is unclear about why so many people are so impassioned about not having vaccines forced on their kids, this is a great introduction to that story. And you've really, you've pulled the context together so well. Um, and then of course there's Dr. Dr. Thomas's story too, but it just, there are so many really important stories in here, and um, let's just let's start with Dr. Thomas's story. So, he was a guest on my show a while ago. He talked about what happened, you know, with with the board and everything. Um, what what is what is what is his part of the story here that that you're telling? Yeah, I mean, what you just described is just a little background context on why I decided to write it and what I wanted to do with it is um, Dr. James Lyons Weiler. Uh, who's mm -hmm. the co-author of the study that was published with Dr. Paul Thomas using his, his practices data showing that the you know, strongly indicating that the, the unvaccinated patients in his clinic are the healthiest patients in his clinic. And it was shortly after that, um, that his license was suspended. And like within a week of that, um, that his license I think it was, was five days. Oregon, was... Oregon medical board. Yeah. Like yeah. they immediately after that study was published, they had this emergency, um, uh, a meeting and then emergently suspended his license. And so uh, doc, Dr. Jack, or uh, as he's otherwise known, uh, uh, Dr. James Lyons Weiler, um, informed me of the first of the, of the study that they were that was published. So I had a chance to read the study. And then when the suspension order was issued, um, he, he informed me of that. And so I, I read the suspension order and what it just leapt out at me was how the, the claims that they were making against Dr. Paul Thomas were perceptively false. You know, like you could just, it was palpable that they, these were false pretexts and that, I mean, it just jumped out at me that like the real reason that they are suspending his license is because he practices informed consent. He enables parents to be able to make their own informed choice and he respects their informed choice. And so this was the real reason. And so, um, you know, I was kind of invited and, and, and I was, uh, I had an opportunity to interview him. And so after that interview, um, I had decided to to do an article on it, but I just realized like there's so much background context. Like if you really want to understand the significance of what has happened with Dr. Paul Thomas, like there's so much background context that you need to know. Um, and so that was kind of the vision that I had. And as you described, I mean, it, there's a lot of background stories. There's a lot of background context that this book contains um, so that you can understand the significance. Because like you said, it's not just about it's not just Dr. Paul's story. It's an important story, but yeah. that's kind of like a microcosm of the 
bigger picture, yeah. right? Well, that's just it. It feels to me, it feels like his story kind of brings everything together. It's like this, yeah, it is like a microcosm of and it's also like the whole thing sort of coming to a head because yes, it's really, you know, just as one example, you know, for for decades, those of us who are skeptical of vaccine safety have just noticed in our own circles, we've heard from doctors, our doctor who first, you know, started talking with us about this, said that she had seen this in her practice. And I hear this from multiple doctors that the vaccinated kids are just less healthy than the unvaccinated, constant ear infections, um, other infections, just constantly in and out of the doctor's office. And it's something that, you know, parents, as parents, we see this too, it's not really something you can talk about openly because you know you're going to insult the other parents if you if you bring it up and right. and until recently there hasn't been a good study showing what we've seen anecdotally. I mean there've been a couple of like surveys which you know don't don't really show, you know, you can't That's hold, strong evidence. Exactly. Yeah. You can't show up a hold up a survey and say, "Look, here's the evidence." But now, right. you know, this what Dr. Thomas has done has actually, you know, has, 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 he's created a peer reviewed study showing what we've sort of kind of known all along. Right. And yeah, we should inform your, your listeners that um, that study has been retracted. I don't oh, know if you're aware. That's news to me. No, I didn't. So, yeah, so what, um, what, tell me what happened. Just not like, surprised. Like toward the end of July, I think it was. Um, however, if you read, this is interesting. Um, if you read the editor's note of, you know, the notice of retraction, mm-hmm. there's not a single substantive criticism of the study in there. They just say, mm-hmm. well, we've, we've found that you know, there was this complaint and um, we found that the, I forget how they worded it, but something like, you know, that the, the, the conclusions don't follow from the, they're not strongly supported by the mm-hmm. evidence or something. Um, so just this vague, generic notice of retraction without a single substantive criticism. Wow. And what's really interesting about that is I happen to know that the retraction was based on an anonymously written letter to the editors that when Dr. Thomas and Dr. James Lansweiler received notice that this complaint had been issued against their paper, this criticism, this anonymously written criticism, um, they proposed that that letter be published by the editors of the journal, Mm -hmm. make it transparent, let this criticism be aired. And then publish our response to it. The journals, the journal editors refused to do that and said they kept the criticism a secret <laughs> and aren't disclosing any information about what the criticisms actually are. And they and they retracted the study. Yeah. And so which that right there, which which journal was this? Oh gosh, um, I forget the name of it. Uh, it, like the Invert Journal of Environmental and Public Health, something like that. I can post it in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, I, I could look it up real quick. But yeah, um, but that's a pretty strong indication that this this decision was not really based on any serious flaws in the study, but it was political. Yeah. You, you know, they can't allow studies like this to stand. Um, so I would be curious to see some substantive criticisms of the paper. Um I reviewed it very thoroughly and very carefully, and I and I, I uh, summarize it uh, in my in my book in the War on Informed Consent, so readers can see for themselves. They can read my summary of it uh, of the key points and the key findings, um, including you know discussion of methodolo- methodological weaknesses, limitations, as well as the strengths of the study. Um, 
And so, and then the readers can go and then read the actual study for themselves. I, I, I found it to be a quite a strong study. Um, obviously there's limitations in any study, but you know, they were, yeah. they say state right in the study, what those limitations are. Um, and you know, the, the limitations of the conclusions that can be drawn for So for example, we can't say that, well, vaccines cause children to have these health problems, right? They say that right in the study. That's not a conclusion that they drew, but you know, with it's strong evidence suggesting that, that vaccinations might be causally related to these outcomes because whatever other factors are involved, you know, obviously. So one of the, one of the criticisms might be of, of past studies and things is, is like, well, so it's not that these children, the unvaccinated children are really healthier than the vaccinated children. It's just that their parents don't utilize healthcare as much. And so they're underdiagnosed, they're undiagnosed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're claiming that there's an equal rate of, you know, health, like chronic health conditions and things and disorders uh, between vaccinated and unvaccinated children. It's just that you don't notice it with the unvaccinated kids because they're, they're undiagnosed. So this is an argument that is literally put forth. Um, and, and there's truth to that. Yes, there might be differences in healthcare. I'm sure there are differences in healthcare behavior, but they, they actually controlled for that in the study. Mm. Um, so for example, they, they looked at rates of fever incidents of fever diagnosis and in, in, uh, um, office visits for fever, comparing the variably vaccinated children in this practice with the unvaccinated children in this practice. And so this is a, a, a control in, in the sense that uh, it's expected that children who are vaccinated, because fever is a known adverse event related to right. causally related to vaccination. And so you would expect children who are variably vaccinated to be in, it, to be, to be in the clinic more often for, for fevers which is precisely what they found. So no surprise there. And then, and then they used uh, the control of well child visits mm-hmm. and they, they did not find that the, the children, the parents of unvaccinated children like utilize the well child visit um, significantly less than the, the children and the parents wow. of children with, who are variably vaccinated. And so that's an indication that, that their findings of you know less incidents and less um, um, relative incidents of office visits, which I'll talk about um, a different a different measure. Um, and, and both of those measures, there was less incidents for the unvaccinated children. This is an indication that's not because they're undiagnosed, right? You know, it's, it's it's not because their parents don't ever take them in to see the doctor. It's because they really are healthier. I mean, this is very strong evidence for that, <clears throat> and so. That's another important point is that they, they did look at two measures. Um, so one is kind of a more traditional approach that has been used in prior like safety studies and in stu- studies of this type, observational uh, studies, um, just looking at incidence of diagnoses. So does the child have X, you know, diagnosis or not? And it's just kind of this binary yes, no. Um, they developed a whole new measure, which they, they termed the relative incidence of office visits which statistically is mm-hmm. more powerful in the sense that it, 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 it well, it, you have a more statistically significant result um, because, and, and if you think about it, that intuitively that that makes sense because, you know, whether a child has a diagnosis is one thing, but if the child has a diagnosis and visits the doctor more frequently for that condition, that's an indication of severity. Yeah. 
And so it's not just like, does the child have X disorder or disease or not? It's like, how severe is it? Yeah. Something's actually going on if you keep coming into the doctor's office. Right. And so they, they developed this new, this new measure and they showed how they, you know, they had more statistically significant results utilizing the relative incidence of office visits as, as opposed to the traditional odds ratio of incidence of of diagnoses. And just Um, to, to back up a little bit, what are the diagnoses we're talking about? What are, what are some of the chronic conditions that they oh, um, there was a broad range. I, let me, I'll pull it up real quick and I'll just read okay. through it I, I, and then I won't get anything wrong. Um, so for example, um, uh, asthma, allergic rhinitis, breathing issues, behavioral issues, ADHD, uh, respiratory infection, otitis media, which is ear infections, ear pain, um, infections of other types. So, you know, uh, other infections. Um, such as, you know, non, uh, infections for which there aren't vaccines. It would be an example, um, eye disorders, eczema, dermatitis, urticaria, which is hives and anemia were, were, um, among the conditions that they showed looking at relative incidence of office visits, um, that the unvaccinated had significantly lower, um, incidence with. So, and there were other conditions when they looked at the odds, um, you know, other conditions that they looked at, but those were the ones they have a, a really stark graph in the paper. And those are the ones right. showing on that particular graph that really stands out uh, of, of the, of the, the curves uh, of relative incidence of office visits with the unvaccinated down here. And then the, the vaccinated. And I'll post here. that. I, I think I posted that on the Dr. Thomas interview, but I'll post that again too, because that is, it is really striking. And the, the graph speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And I think, and autism was, you know, not in, probably not in the relative incidence of office visits measures, no, no, but it, it does appear in the, in the di- com- comparison of diagnosis, I believe. Is that right? Uh, no, they didn't. No, they couldn't. They couldn't do any anything with it in their analysis because he has such low incidence of autism in his practice. Uh, okay. So but maybe it was ADHD. That, but that by itself says yeah. something. So right. And so one that. thing, one thing to, to point out is that this is from his practice where any families who are vaccinating are probably using his protocol, which is not the full CDC protocol. So I'm guessing if we compared his unvaccinated patients to fully vaccinated using the yes. full CDC protocol, right. it would be even more. I mean, obviously that's that, that really comparison hasn't point. been done. Yeah, um, that's a really important point because this was not a study comparing. This was not the study that we, you know, all, we've all everyone's asking for, clamoring yeah. for forever. It wasn't yeah. a study comparing fully vaccinated children, vaccinated according to the CDC schedule with unvaccinated kids because he doesn't have a big population of children who are fully vaccinated there. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, in fact, they have a chart showing, you know, like, uh, like how many vaccine doses each child has received. And you have the unvaccinated um, and there are several hundred un- unvac- completely unvaccinated children. And then, you know, a couple thousand kids. And he, they only also only looked at children who were born into the practice, right? They didn't want to confound right, right. The, the study using patients from other practices that have a different approach. So they only looked at patients yeah. born into the practice. So then, um, you know, the duration of time in the clinic then was you know, correlated with age. So, which was convenient too. <clears throat> and so, yeah, they had this chart, this graph showing, you know, that, that most of the kids were, it wasn't like unvaccinated, fully vaccinated. It was just like unvaccinated and then variably vaccinated. And you can see that the parents are choosing all kinds of different schedules. There's no like, and they're not just, and it's not, they're just taking Dr. Paul's alternative, um, rec, you know, the vaccine friendly plan approach. Because the whole concept there was not like, oh, here's this alternative one size that fits all approach. 
It yeah. was, this is an example of a different approach and every parent needs to decide for themselves, you know, based on their child and their knowledge of their own ch child's health and family medical history and so on of, you know, what would be the best approach for their child. So the, the, the vaccine, and this is something that the Oregon medical board just doesn't get that yeah. he wasn't proposing some alternative one size fits all approach. You know, he's, he's, right. he's, he's, he's advocating uh, informed consent in individualized right. care. And Which so you heresy. can see that in the data. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so he publishes this study. He, um, five days later, his, his license is suspended. Um, what, what does that tell us? Um, it's a very strong indication that it was the, the, suspension order was politically motivated it had nothing to do of course the, so the charge for for listeners on uh, the background here the charge was essentially that uh dr paul thomas was a threat to public health for not vaccinating for not pushing the cdc schedule on his patients essentially um so that was really the the key accusation of, of the suspension order that he's a threat to public health because his children are under vaccinated generally you know he has a lower rate of vaccination in, in his uh, in his practice lower rate of children who are fully vaccinated. Um, and so yeah, the, the fact that this suspension order came just days, literally days after that study mm -hmm. was published. And another really important point is that the Oregon Medical Board had requested that data right. from Dr. Paul. Right. They requested it. In fact, they sent him, a, <clears throat> a, and I think, here's what I think. You know, they said they had sent him a letter, a complaint, um, saying, you know, like, obviously they were, they were going to be coming after him. And they told him like, we, you need to show us peer reviewed evidence that your approach <laughs> is effective and, and, and is, has you, you're getting good health outcomes and that you're not getting worse health outcomes from right, the CDC right. schedule. They had requested, in fact, they demanded that he do that. I think they thought that that would be a hoop he would not be able to jump through. I think they thought they assumed that that would be an mm -hmm. obstacle that he could not overcome and that they were going to nail him on that. But then he did. <laughs> and they emergently suspended his license just days after that study was published. That says Incredible. a lot. Yeah. I mean, that speaks yeah. volumes about the true motivation here and how yeah. the, the complaints that they, they level at him in the suspension order are false pretexts. And that the true reason is they can't tolerate doctors who respect um, patients' right to informed consent, because that is directly contrary to public health policy and the state yeah. policy of, of trying to maintain high vaccination rates among the childhood population. So the goal of the state is to maintain high vaccination rates. Regardless Dr. of the Paul outcome. Paul Thomas's goal is to get good health outcomes. Yeah. yeah. And there's a divergence between those two goals. So what do you think, what do you think the impact of this? So, you know, now it's been retracted. So for a lot of people, that's going to mean, oh, it was, you know, it was bogus. It, you know, there was something there, there it was flawed. There was something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a growing number of people who kind of recognize how the medical, medical research world and how medical publication world works yeah. and recognize that that's not what that means. And no, right. it's yeah. in these last couple of years, especially it's become so much clearer to sort of a general audience how that industry works and how you know who's pulling the strings there so what what do you suspect what do you think this study 
retracted or not, what do you think the impact of that is going to be on sort of opinion at large on public? Do you think it's going to have an impact on public policy? Um, and not, probably not on public policy, but just in terms of, you know, the, the Dr. Paul Thomas um, story within that, you know, that the microcosm within that, the bigger picture here, I think, I, I don't, honestly don't think it's going to have too great an effect because I think precisely like what, what you just described, uh, the people who are aware and are paying attention to these things and know about these issues and what's going on, um, it can recognize that this is just a problem within the peer review um, journal uh, establishment itself. And it, yeah. this is not even controversial. I mean, yeah. the BMJ mm-hmm. a year or two ago had, had a major series of articles talking about the problems with peer review and the problems with journals and how they become, you know, essentially like laundering operations for the pharmaceutical industry. And there's so many conflicts of interest and corruption. And it's a huge problem. And it's not, this is not, you know, like a marginal issue. Like this is a big deal. And, and it's, it's recognized in the literature itself that that there is a that the peer review system itself is broken, so that's not even yeah. controversial. That's recognized. Yeah. I mean, you have like Richard Horton, former uh, Lancet, if I'm getting it right. Um, you yeah. know, he's talked about that. He's written about that. Another editor with the um, Marcia Angle, New England Journal of Medicine. I forget yeah. her name. Mar- Marcia has, Angle has, has said yes, famously that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's talked about this. I mean, it's a recognized problem. And so I think as long as there's an awareness of that, you know, as long as the person who is receiving this information, like, okay, if, if, if they're told, oh, well, that study was retracted. Yes, you could conclude from that, oh, that it must have been fraudulent or that must have had, you know, poor methodology or something. But the thing is, you can't draw that conclusion logically because yeah. it hasn't actually been shown to be flawed. Like, so there's, they're claiming it was flawed. But what were the flaws? I mean, if you can't even specify, right? Then, then, right. then, what was the real reason? I mean, yeah. you would think that if they had a real, legitimate reason to attract the study, they would tell you what it is. But the fact that they're not even telling you that they're keeping that a secret, well, I think people see through that. I think that's a mistake from the perspective of the, of the editors of the journal. Like for them to have done that, I think just shows that they're not being honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they think that the stamp of retraction is enough. <clears throat> to I think shut down that's their assumption is that if we just yeah. retract it and, that, and that's going to, ta- yeah. uh, yeah. you know, taint it and, and that, that'll do the job. But um, I, I think, I think the, um, the, the community, the health freedom community, I mean, we're so far beyond that kind of tactic, you know, yeah. like that's yeah. just, is so transparent that I don't think it's going to have the effect that they probably intended. So, Getting back to Dr. Thomas and his practice, um, he he sort of became as as more and more pediatricians were sort of getting, being cracked down upon. If if you know if if they you know they 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 get um, payouts from the insurance companies if they have a certain number of, of vaccinated kids in their practice and and all these incentives to to vaccinate. So parents were coming to him. Is that correct? They were they were seeking him out, basically. Parents yes. who didn't want. So yeah. um, how how does how does his story? How does what he was doing and the crackdowns on pediatricians? How does that all sort of tie into the to the like the larger story of why parents are skeptical in the first place? So what's happened in this, your state? The state you're in, in California um, yeah. has a lot to do with this. Um, <clears throat> So what we've been seeing, not only in California, but in other states as well, there was for many years, there's been this movement to eliminate what are called non-medical exemptions. Um, you know, so for example, if, if a 
a child has a, con- a, a CDC recognized contraindication to vaccination, which, which are very narrowly defined, yeah. Yeah. Um, then they can get a what they consider to be a medical exemption. If for they, that if specific they can't, vaccine. If they don't meet those those narrow criteria, then you know they can they can also in, in depending on the state you can get a philosophical uh, exemption or a religious exemption. And so these these are all lumped together under non medical exemptions. Now, there, of course, there are many parents who have legitimate medical science based concerns, and this is the reason. But they might just be using, for example, a religious exemption, not right. because it's necessarily like a religious obje- uh, objection to vaccination, but because it's they they have legitimate medical concerns about about the vaccination and so the, the term non medical exemption I, I use quite loosely because a lot of times yeah. it, it is really a medical exemption it's just being granted under whatever well, and, and just means. to make just to make one point about that um in california special I, I don't i don't know how they enforce this elsewhere but for the medical exe- medical exemptions in california are for all intents and purposes gone now you really right. you really cannot get one but right. even even before that happened, really the premise of a medical exemption is your child has to have been injured already in order for you to claim a medical exemption. So right. parents who have legitimate concerns, and that should be all parents, but anyone who who understands, you know, the 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 literature on vaccines and who who understands what some of the risks are, knows that there is a medical risk to any vaccine, and so. But but that kind of exemption doesn't exist. There's there's no exemption spot for someone who's aware of the risks and chooses not to take those risks. It's only if you've already subjected your child to this and they've been injured, right? You get a medical exemption. So right. or, or if you have some known condition that's um, that's contraindicated, and and, right. and as you said, you know though, even those are, are few and far to, far between. Very narrowly defined. And so what's happened is, so for example, um, they, they went after um. Gosh, I forget that Dr. Bob Sears. Yeah. I almost forgot, I forgot who the name, uh, Dr. Bob Sears. They went after him because he had written an exemption for, for all vaccinations to a mother who was concerned about getting the vaccines because her child had already had a very severe reaction to vaccination in the past right. where she became limp like a doll, according to the, you know, the, the, the government's like accusation against him. There's uh, um you know, complaint against him. And that wasn't reason enough. Right. That wasn't reason enough for her to get an exemption. So they went after him for that and punished him for it. Yeah. Um, and so, so there's the number one, number one, there's the movement, you know, the, this, this move um, to try to eliminate what are called non-medical exemptions. And then going beyond that to narrow medical exemptions to only those narrow uh, criteria of the CDC recognized contraindications right. and nothing else. So family history, doesn't right. matter. Family history of autoimmune disease, of allergies, of asthma, anything like that. Uh, family history of autism. It doesn't matter. No, no, family history is, it's, it's not a consideration. Um, and so, and then the next move is with, with the Dr. Senator Richard Pan leading the charge to essentially also eliminate medical exemptions Yeah, because Richard Pan's view of how the system should work is that when doctors write exemptions for vaccinations, they are not practicing medicine. Instead, they are fulfilling an administrative function in service to the state. That's his view. And so they, you know, he pushed through the legislation to, um, to, to basically enable the state to override 
doctors' decisions. So bureaucrats, you know, in the state capital can override the decision of doctors, despite the fact that the bureaucrats have no knowledge of the, of the individual child. They have none of the knowledge required to be able to make that decision, like the parents do, uh, working in conjunction with the child's pediatrician. And yet they're, they're the ones saying that we get to, we're the final arbiters of whether this child should, should have a, a, an exemption or not. Um, right. That is just such ludicrous authoritarianism where you're eliminating the doctor patient relationship and informed choice for the parents is not an option. Yeah. But that's, and- that's the direction it's happened in California. That's the direction that has been moving in other States. This is the direction it's that, that has been moving in Oregon to come back to that question. So what, this story is, is it shows how, um, you know, they've long been going after the parents and trying to punish the parents for choosing not to vaccinate according to the CDC schedule and, and to trying to eliminate any means of actually exercising the right to informed dissent from vaccinations. And so now they've done everything they can to try to, uh, you know, intimidate the parents and go after the parents and punish parents. So now they're going after doctors. So any doctors mm-hmm. who enable a parent to make an informed choice there to be punished. And that's what this means. That's what Dr. Paul's story means. That's the significance. So it's not just about, he has a remarkable story and I encourage people to read it just to get his story, but it's, that's just, that's just like one little, you know, like incident in this bigger picture of what's happening in terms of the, 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 that's why the book is titled the war on informed consent. Because that's just one little story in the big picture of, of what's yeah. happening. And like, if people don't wake up and take action and stand up for their medical freedom, it will be lost. Um, and unfortunately, there are encouraging signs. Uh, there's a lot of discouraging things happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine passport issues and the mandates. Um, it's very discouraging. But at the same time, um, we were making great progress prior to the pandemic. And I think that the pandemic has had a beneficial um outcome of really awakening a broader yep. segment of the population, including the libertarian community. We've yeah, seen, some of them. You some and I have, have been frustrated about that, but yeah, I've seen yeah. a kind of this awakening in the libertarian community and elsewhere of, of like, oh gosh, well, this really is an issue. And it really isn't like, oh, about like pro-vax versus anti-vax. Like, no, there's a real fundamental problem of the right to informed consent being violated here. Um, and so I think that there's just is more awareness of that now. So I think that's a kind yeah, of positive I think to that's, look at the glasses half full. That's that's been huge. That's um, you know, what we do with that awareness is is another question. But right. yeah, that's been that's been a huge, a huge gain. Um one thing that, you know, in looking at Dr. Thomas's story, Bob Sears' story, other doctors that have been harassed or censured or or had their licenses stripped is it seems that the the weapon that's used to to attack them is the institution of licensing. Um, what what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I I, I think I think licensing is is an archaic idea that needs to be eliminated. We need to progress and but advance. But don't we need? Doesn't it protect people? Doesn't it? Doesn't it protect? You know, guarantee no, it, it, a level it enables of the state. And- it enables the state to control. Um, doctors and to control their behavior and it eliminates any kind of competition. So, and, and this is a perfect example. So, um, so for example, the, the suspension order against Dr. Paul Thomas, the, the, the accusation was that he was bullying parents. I usually use that term bullying right. parents into not vaccinating. 
Um, and, I, and I wanted to, you mentioned this earlier. So how parents were like, you mentioned how parents actually were flocking to his yeah, clinic because yeah. they wanted to be able to be empowered to make an informed choice, which is precisely the truth. And so the, the suspension order was obfuscating that by claiming that he was bullying patients. Well, of course, <laughs> the whole reason that those p- parents are going to his clinic is precisely because they're sick and tired of being bullied. Right. So we know that it can't be, a, we, we know logically, it cannot be true that the Oregon Medical Board has a problem with physicians bullying parents. Right. Because they have no problem whatsoever with, with, with pediatricians bullying parents into vaccinating according to the CDC schedule. In fact, that is one of the loudest and clearest messages from their suspension order to other doctors in the state is that you'd better coerce and intimidate your parents right. into doing what or we we're going to do this to you or you're going to lose your license. Yeah. yeah. That message is so loud and clear. Um, and, and, that, that, and that is the threat to public health. You know, Dr. Paul Thomas ha, um, he published a study that did pass peer review um, that showed, it just showed the data from his practice. I mean, it, it's the data, the data is the data. And it showed that, you know, that, that his, his unvaccinated children had far less incidence of, of diagnoses and office visits for a broad range of health conditions. Obviously, he's doing something right. You know, and, and they, they claim that, you know, he, that those children are at risk and, and that they're, they're going to have worse health outcomes. Well, he debunked that claim. Yeah. yeah. He literally debunked that. Well, and that's why he had to be removed. And so it's not about public health. It has yeah. nothing to do with public health. It's about obedience. It's it's they want doctors to to do what they're told and and vaccinate their patients according to the CDC schedule to maintain that high vaccination rate because that's a policy goal. So the policy goal of high vaccination overrides it supersedes concerns about children's health. Yeah, and that's the fundamental problem. And so we see how the whole concept of licensing is being used to public health detriment in this case. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem with the licensing system. So what do you think should be done? Well, ultimately, I think the whole idea of, of government intervention in healthcare, including licensing, should be abolished. I mean, it should, it should just be eliminated. We need to have a free market and people should be able to choose to go, you know, if, if Dr. Paul Thomas, you know, if, if he didn't have a license, if there was no such thing as licensing and, and there were all these different doctors that parents could go to, I mean, the free market would function. They would be able to see, oh, well, that doctor gets really good health outcomes with his patients. I want to go see him. It doesn't matter, you know, what the state says. It doesn't matter what the government says. People can decide for themselves, like, well, he's doing something right. Look at all these other doctors who are doing what, you know, the bureaucrats want them to do. And, and they're having all these horrible health outcomes with their, with their pediatric patients. So just let, let people have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think people are coming around to that? I mean, you know, for I've been saying that for years. I'm sure you have, too. Um and the response I usually get is, oh, my God, the government, it, it's, we have to have licensing because it protects us. It protects us from bad actors, from snake oil, know, snake oil, exactly <laughs> snake oil from from the quacks and all that. Um, I, I think in in the real world, we see that that's actually not what happens. Right. Um, and in fact, actually, there, there have been papers written about this, uh, looking at the evidence in support of, of government licensing. And it's just kind of not there. Basically, the 
the way that that doctors are censured is not through it's not through government licensing. It's through things like you know malpractice suits, um, malpractice insurance, making sure you know if you get a certain number of complaints against you, you it's very difficult for you to get insurance. That kind of thing. There are actual market solutions that in the real world are more effective, and yes. and for whatever reasons are acting more to sort of police doctors than the licensing establishment is. But well, that's not something that's to, widely. Yeah, similar to the problem with patents. And it, it, essentially what licensing does is it enables the government to have a monopoly over mm-hmm. how healthcare is practiced. And so if, if, you know, if the bureaucrats get it wrong, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's detrimental for the whole society. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the bureaucrats aren't just acting on their own, you know, whims or impulses. They're they've got incentives too. They've got people that they're indebted to, or that you know, right? And, and they're, they're working in, in service to the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I mean that's clear as clear as day. Yeah, um, that that's one of the major problems is that is that the the, poli- the the public health policies aren't serving the interests of public health, the so called public health, but the public health establishment is really geared toward enabling the pharmaceutical industry to profit. Yeah. And this is, I mean, I think everyone knows this. Right? Yeah. If, <laughs> they know it, if they didn't know it before 2020, it, they it, know it now. Right. And it's like, if, you, if, you, if we're not talking about vaccines, if you're talking about any other types of drugs, you know, like that's just, everyone knows big pharma is this malevolent, you know, influence on, on the yeah. healthcare and in and, yeah. and, and government. And, but like, suddenly it's on vaccines and like, they're all saints. And right. Right. We have to or trust it, them. And as our case says, they suddenly and, found, they found Jesus with vaccines. Yeah, they found so. Jesus. I mean, it's, the, the cognitive dissonance is really yeah. staggering, but um, yeah, this is, this is a huge problem. I mean, uh, the, and the, the absence of a free market in healthcare is, is so detrimental to our health. It's I becoming be deadly at this obvious. point. Yeah, I mean, it this, this, the past year with, you know, with, with people forced to leave their their ailing relatives in hospitals where they couldn't even visit them and um, the whole nursing home scandal. I mean, it, it's really become, it's gotten to a point where it's visibly deadly. I think it's always been yes. deadly, but it's like, it's visibly deadly now. And right. so, so what do we do? Oh, that's such a great question and a difficult one. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's different for every everyone. I mean, everyone has their own strengths. And their own, um, you know, there's so many fronts in this battle, right? Yeah. That need to be fought. And so every individual just needs to kind of figure out like what is it, what is it that that I can do to contribute to this effort to to fight for our health freedom. Um, so my role, I see myself, you know, uh, I'm a researcher, I'm a writer. I can kind of connect the dots for people and give people the information, and then they can go and check my sources and make sure that what I'm saying is accurate and truthful. Um, but then what people do with that knowledge is kind of something else, and I, I can't really. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, there's so many different fronts. I mean, there's, there's political activism, you know, like writing your legislators and, and going to protests. And there's that whole kind of front. Um, there's just the educational front, just sharing information with friends and family and getting maybe right doing writing and kind of doing similar things to what I'm doing, doing journalism, um, citizen journalism, um, you know, just raising awareness. The, the big thing is we don't need to have like a majority. Right. We just need to reach a critical mass of awakening. Yeah. To the point where the uh, their political agenda just becomes infeasible. They can it no longer becomes feasible for them to try to like force vaccines on on children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just need to reach that critical mass. That do you think we're problem. close to it? Uh, 
I, I would like to say yes, but I, no, to be honest, I, I don't think, I think we have a long way to go. I think we've made great progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think we've made huge progress. And I, and I think in, in, in an ironic way, the COVID-19 situation has helped. Yeah. Despite some setbacks in, in the long run, I think it is going to end up helping. I think it's, it's raised awareness about the problems of just trusting the public health establishment. Yeah. Um, I think people have realized like, wow, these, these people that we're supposed to trust, they just, they have no idea what they're talking about and they keep flip-flopping and changing recommendations. They're just, they're flying blind. I mean, they have no idea what's going on. Um, And then the censorship, you know, like before, I mean, that was kind of like, even if you weren't like involved in the health freedom movement, you probably didn't even know that this censorship was going on. And now it's like, everyone knows about it. It's like a big thing. It's part of the mainstream discussion that, the censorship is taking place that scientists are being censored for yeah. voicing the wrong opinion, you know, it's for wrong think. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Martin Koldorf and Jada Bhattacharya and, and, you know, um, Robert Malone. I mean, all these scientists um, who Mike Eden, uh, all these yeah. scientists who have been speaking out um, with Kowski, who coming out with, with saying things that are different from the official, you know, <laughs> proclamations from government health officials, if you stray from that, it's like you're a heretic and you have to be silenced. They can't right. tolerate any dissent. And they're in, so of course they're working in conjunction with the social media companies to ensure that only what the CDC says is the truth. That's the gospel truth. If it comes from the CDC or the WHO, that's gospel truth. Even if they flip flop. Right. Right. Even if it's one thing one week and the next thing, the next week, but yeah, anything else, like, anything I else. I mean, it's really heretical. gotten to sort of Soviet, soviet dimensions here it's it's that's it's not even an exaggeration to say that anymore it's no but the the beneficial thing though is that it's so open that everyone knows about it now and it's not like oh that's like a conspiracy theory they're not censoring people i mean it's (laughs) it's just out in the open it's in your face and so you know i think in the end in the long run i mean there's a short-term setback here no doubt but i think in the long run it's going to end up helping to push us toward that that reaching that critical mass, that yeah. tipping point of, of, so. of, of awakened individuals who know what's going on, understand what's going on, and they can see through the lies and the deceptions and the propaganda. Uh, and they're just going to stand up for their rights and, and make their own choices because they know what's in their own Especially best after we get to like the ninth booster, you know, and right. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, wait a second. Wait. Right. Um, what, what response have you gotten well, to your book? The, oh, CDC so- is, the CDC is now claiming on that point, the CDC is now claiming that vaccines confer superior immunity to natural immunity. That statement is right on their website now, which is a complete and total lie. That is exactly, that is precisely the opposite of what the totality of evidence tells us. Yeah. There's no yeah. question that naturally, this is the topic of my next article, but we'll come to that. Uh, awesome. but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, that I don't think they realize. Blatantly, blatantly lying. Yes. You know, as much as we're still probably in a minority, I don't think, <clears throat> I really don't think the people at these, at these, institutions realize how much credibility they've lost. And I don't think, I, th- I don't think they no. care. I don't think I they're think like they're, oblivious. It's yeah. like they're living in their own bubble and they just, they yes. don't, they'll come out with stuff like this where it's like, and you expect anyone who's paying attention to listen to the next thing you say. Right. But, but it's like, they don't, yeah, they, they just, they don't care. And that's, yeah, it's kind of mind boggling, I guess. I think but, it's, it's like a mass delusion. I, I really think they're oblivious to the fact that they, their their credibility is just in tatters you know it's, yeah, it's tattered yeah um 
And I guess they've so, been able to coast for so long on authority, on just yes. you know being in this position of authority. Right. They think they can say anything and just get away with it. And and you know maybe they can for a little while longer, but at some point, at some point that's just going to come crashing down because enough right. people will recognize what a sham it all is. The, the house of cards will collapse. Yes. Yeah. It's just yeah. a matter of time. Um, and I, I don't think they're doing themselves any favors. You know, no, like, like making it, these proclamations and these bold claims um, that are completely not just unsupported, but like completely contradicted by all the scientific evidence. All yeah, yeah. Every shred of scientific evidence says that natural immunity is superior to vaccine. Yeah. Well, and everything we're seeing now where, you know, the the COVID that now it looks like whatever protection it does, it does afford lasts maybe a matter of months. And then you need the booster and you need another booster. And it, it, it even if even for the people who don't read the science to look in front of you and look at how many boosters you're being asked to get. And seriously, that's, that's better than, than getting, you know, one coronavirus infection that's then helpful against any other coronavirus infection you encounter. It just. Well, the, the CDC's guidance on masks is a perfect example of how, you know, their credibility is just, they have none, you know, because first they were being criticized for saying, for telling vaccinated people to continue wearing masks, which you know, was the reason for that was because they they didn't have data showing that the vaccines prevented transmission. This the clinical trials right. weren't designed right to look at that outcome, so they didn't they didn't know they didn't know whether the vaccines would actually be effective at preventing transmission. But they were being criticized for because that sends the wrong message that that tells people that the vaccines aren't effective and they're not working, <laughs> right? So then they then they flip flopped and they said, okay, well if you're vaccinated now, you don't need to wear a mask when you go out, and everyone else does, including people with natural immunity, they need to continue masking. Because we don't know how long that you lasts. You don't need to wear a mask. And then, and then, you know, just a short period of time later, they flip-flopped again and said, oh, whoops, people who are fully vaccinated are spreading the virus. You need to continue wearing masks too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's anyone who, who thinks that the CDC is a credible source for information at this point, I just like, is there, that, that's a delusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. delusional. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny. It's all political. It's just, I mean, they make, make judgments and guidances and it's all, it's all political and it's not, it's not based on science. No. And it's, and it's funny. It is funny to watch because as you say, it's like, they're just, they're oblivious. They don't understand that you can't keep saying stuff like this. You can't keep flip-flopping and, and have people listen to you. And yet a lot of people still do listen to them. So I guess, you know, I guess that that's, that's okay with them. They're not, they're not getting the signals they need to get. Yeah, there um, are still uh, an unfortunately large proportion of the population who look to the CDC as this trusted public health, you know, uh, institution, you know, look at the world, the world health organization as this trusted public health authority. Yeah. Um, and sadly, those are the ones who are going to go out and get the nine boosters and suffer the consequences. Right. And, and there are some, one of the biggest concerns I have is that, so It'd be one thing if, you know, um, if people who got vaccinated and then that had experienced vaccine failure and they became infected. Um, one big question I have is, does that infection then essentially override their vaccine conferred immunity and they acquire essentially natural immunity as a result of that infection? Mm. Or are we going to be witnessing some kind of original antigenic sin phenomenon where that initial priming by vaccination then prejudices their immune response to SARS-CoV-2 throughout the rest of their lives so that they will always have a suboptimal immune response with the opportunity cost of natural immunity. This is one of the biggest questions in my mind that like, nobody's talking about. I mean, there are no studies looking into this. 
but it's, I mean, this, this should be at the forefront of scientific research. I mean, researchers should be, this should be one of the key points that they're looking at and looking for evidence. Like, okay, because they have, they have the data to be able to do this type of study, yeah. to be able to look and say, okay, well, these individuals were, were, their immune systems were primed by vaccination rather than infection. And then they experienced breakthrough infection, vaccine failure. And, you know, they could look at, they could look at that and they could look at the, the, how the immune system responds. You know, they could look at the B cells and the T cells and the antibodies mm -hmm. and, and they could, and, and, and see like, oh, so are they having an immune response to that, to that breakthrough infection that is equivalent to a, a an immunologically naive individual becoming affected? Right. Are they acquiring right. that same robustness and in, in, uh, durability and broadness of, right. of natural immunity, or and, and, is and, it more limited still because of the priming by vaccination? That's a really important question. And that's separate from the issue of antibody dependent enhancement, right? Yes. So you're talking yes. about, you're talking about the, the, um, the opportunity cost of yes. not going through natural infection and developing natural immunity. That's, that's one big issue, but then there's exactly. also the issue of antibody dependent enhancement, right which maybe we're seeing that happen now. And there's, there is evidence that that, you know, that's something we, it's a known issue with coronavirus vaccines. Right. And the other thing um, that I just saw recently is that apparently um, those vaccinated um, with, with the COVID-19 vaccines um, have lower white blood cell counts there. Or they can, I don't know if a causal relationship has been established, but that the thinking is that the vaccination causes lower white blood cell production. So yeah, I've seen, um, I think there's research showing like lower, um, killer T cells, something like this. Um, mm -hmm. it, it appears I haven't written up, I tend to things lock into my memory when I write about them. So if yeah. I haven't written about yeah. it, I don't remember the specifics as well, but, um, uh, yeah, there, there are some concerns about kind of a detrimental effect on broader immunity, you know, like greater risk of parasitic infection. Right. Right. Um, and so this, this gets into the category of uh, side effects of vaccines known as um, nonspecific effects, which are distinct from, you know, what they call adverse events. And you see this claim, I just months in healthcare here in Michigan, I was reading one of their newsletter just yesterday and, and they had an article in there and they said that, well, uh, any long-term harms from, the, from, from vaccination would typically show up within a matter of six weeks. And so the studies, the clinical trials went on for, you know, several months. And so they right. really showed, you know, conclusively that there aren't any long-term harms from these vaccines. And I'm just thinking, so never mind the whole body of literature on nonspecific effects, effects, effects of vaccination that wouldn't show up for, for not just months, but years. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't be able to, 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 to see it in the data until years later, potentially. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and one non-specific effect, for example, is a, a, of course with the DTP vaccine, the, the diphtheria, tetanus, and whole cell pertussis vaccine. The assumption was that, oh, well, by reducing uh, incidence of those three diseases, we can lower childhood mortality. That was just the assumption. It had never been tested in, in clinical right. trials, but they made that assumption. And as it turns out, um, all the best science we have to date indicates that that vaccine actually detrimentally affects children's immune system. So even though it right. might protect them against those, those three diseases, childhood mortality detrimentally affects increases. their immune system so that they become more vulnerable to other diseases. And so they're dying of other causes. Right. Right. And that's not going to show up in a six week clinical trial. Right, right. Right. And I would imagine a lot of the, the conditions that Dr. Thomas looked at in his practice, I would imagine a lot of those don't show up right away either. And I don't know if his 
data shows, you know, when, at what point those conditions became apparent, but, you right. know, asthma, does that, is that going to show up within six weeks? Um, or is it maybe after multiple? Disease. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and that's the thing is it's like, they, they don't even, con- that's not even consideration. It's, it's, they're thinking of things like, oh, does it cause a fever? Uh, the, does it cause encephalitis? You know, like when you get, get the vaccine, um, they're look they're looking at these kind of short-term um, adverse events that are temporarily associated with the vaccination. I mean, right. they're literally claiming that any, any harm would be temporarily associated with the vaccination. Well, I think that that's completely false. They, they need that's that's their safe position because you know you can't deny that there are some temporally associated effects you can't deny that you know when you have 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 studies showing that there's an increased rate of seizures after a certain vaccine for example okay that's related to the vaccine right but it's it's harder to show and it's why this study hasn't been done until dr thomas did it it's harder to to show a link between, you know, you can show an association if you do the big study, but the CDC has never agreed to do the study. Um, you know, it's probably, it's harder to see that link between, you know, someone who develops autoimmune disease over a decade and their childhood immunizations, um, right. which and, is why Dr. Thomas's study is so important. Right. And, and if you're not looking, you're not going to find it. So, right. I mean, because if, for example, with, with clinical trials, they're, they're asking the question, does it protect against this disease or not? They're not asking the question, right. well, what are, what are, what are the long-term health outcomes comparing vaccinated yeah. and unvaccinated individuals, long-term health outcomes, including all cause mortality. They're not looking at that. They might yeah. look at mortality from the disease. Yeah. They might say, well, does it, does it protect against dying from this particular disease but even if even if that's true even if you like with the COVID-19 vaccines even though though it might be true that they they do reduce your risk of dying if you're exposed to the virus it doesn't mean that it reduces your risk of dying yeah from all you know because it, what if it detrimentally what if it's like the pertussis vaccine that it detrimentally affects your your immune system so that even though you don't die from COVID-19 it makes you more vulnerable to something else and so you die from some other cause well, if they're not studying that to find out like what those long-term effects might be, they will mm-hmm. never know because it's, they're not the kind of things, I mean, are not the scientific knowledge of, of the immune system and, and the bodily system, how, how our bodies function is quite limited. I mean, we're really, it's such a broad frontier um, and, and there's no way to even anticipate. I mean, it's, it's easy to anticipate certain things, you know, like, like that a vaccine causes inflammation, you might get brain damage. Okay. There might be encephalitis. Yeah. There are some things that you can anticipate might happen or potential risks that you can kind of anticipate and, and theoretically come up with in advance of designing a clinical trial. But there are, there are, you know, there's an infinite number of potential outcomes that you could never even anticipate. You might never even guess um, that something like that could happen, um, you know, over the long term. And so unless you're doing, unless you're actually looking at long-term health outcomes and looking at right. broad <clears throat> outcomes, like you just never know. And they do not do those studies. Those studies are not done. And so that's why we yeah. have to rely on observational data, such as Dr. Thomas's study, um, where, you know, obviously he didn't conduct a randomized placebo controlled trial. He, he just looked at his own clinical data uh, and looking at health outcomes. And so of course there's, uh, there's limitations with any observational study. I mean, yeah. it, it is observational data. Um, it's not it's not randomized. There, there might be differences in, in healthcare seeking behavior between parents who, who vaccinate versus don't. I mean, there are all those kinds of issues. So there's limitations with any of that, you know, any type of that type of study. At the same time, whenever an observational study 
you know, seems to exonerate vaccines. And so yeah, it's thrown up it's there. It's only the, declared yeah, as like yeah. proof. Yeah. Well, and the, like, like with preg- vaccines and pregnancy, they're telling oh pregnant women that it's safe to get a COVID-19 vaccine based on what? Based on observational data. Pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials. Yeah. So my question is, okay, well, if we can lower the standards of evidence specifically for pregnant women, which in my thinking, like, well, maybe we should minimally keep keep the same standard, maybe raise the standard or raise the bar a little bit. But they're doing the yeah. opposite, and they're lowering the standards of evidence evidence specifically for pregnant women. So if they can look at observational data and say, oh, well, this is safe for pregnancies, my question is, what's the point of randomized placebo-controlled trials in the first place? Then, why even conduct clinical trials? Just skip them. Right. Put the vaccine on the market. Start watching. Collect collect right. the data well, through VARES and whatever other database. And, and just do your observational studies. And that's sufficient, right? We don't need to have clinical trials at I mean, that's what all. They're I mean, basing if it's good enough for their... pregnant women, <clears throat> and why not everyone else? That's I mean, what they're, they're basing all of their claims on now because the, the findings of the studies of the actual trials were so limited that everything else is, you know, everyone out here is now the experiment, but it's not randomized and it's not controlled. So, right. yeah, it's-, it's... Right, and so, but, you know, those type observational studies are fine Right. If you're to saying to me, just saying, you know, you're promoting the are safe and effective. But if you do an observational study that comes to the wrong conclusion, suddenly, oh, well, it's, it's, it's it was just, just an observational, observational study. study. Correlation doesn't equal causation. There's methodological flaws in that study. I mean, right. it's like, well, right. The right. double standard and the hypocrisy is, is just outrageous. It's not. This is the state of affairs. Um, and it yeah. just speaks to the thorough corruption of the entire public health establishment. What do you think is going to happen? Um, as you know, the cold and flu season comes upon us in the next few months. Mm. Um, you know, there's if if these if these issues with the vaccine um, being detrimental to people's immune system, which I think are you know, I think it's a given that that's going to happen to some extent, mm-hmm. um, and all the other problems with the vaccines, myocarditis, the blood clotting, everything. Um, you know, there's there's some suspicion that as we move forward in the next couple of months, I mean, I think we're already seeing it, at least in California, we're already seeing, you know, increased hospitalizations and deaths, quote unquote, for COVID. And in some cases, you know, they're, they're talking about how, oh, it's all the unvaccinated. But when you look at the definition of unvaccinated, it's someone who's only had one vaccine or only had two vaccines and they haven't had their final booster. <laughs> so do, do you think that, um, do you think there's going to be a lot of sort of confounding of of the source of the problem as we move into cold and flu season and we're going to see a lot of sort of claims that there's a new wave of covid and it's deadlier than ever when in fact it's actually people's immune systems have been under assault i don't know i wouldn't want to speculate because I, I mean we don't have enough data to see the direction it's going to go at this point like with ADE so for example with antibody yeah. dependent enhancement i haven't seen convincing evidence that that's occurring to date mm-hmm. however it's you know it's certainly very um possible that as mass vaccination puts evolutionary pressure on SARS-CoV-2 to mutate and and evolve and to escape mutant that what could potentially occur is that suddenly uh, with some new variant, the antibodies stimulated by the vaccination are no longer a match at all for the yeah. new spike protein. 
And instead of neutralizing antibodies, you get a high titer of non-neutralizing antibodies that then are not just suboptimal, but detrimental in the sense that they yeah. become Trojan horses with antibody dependent enhancement and actually um, assist the virus into uh, penetrating cells and, and, and um, you know, infecting the cells. But that's what antibody dependent enhancement is. And right. so just because we're not seeing it yet, to my knowledge, doesn't mean that it's, that's not a risk that's still there. We can't look at the clinical yeah. trial data and say, oh, well, we don't need to worry about antibody dependent enhancement. Right. That's not the case. Like it's that's a, that's going to be a concern always and ever with these vaccines. And what what evidence? I mean, given that that likely the people, you know, with the big the big trial money aren't going to aren't going to take this on as a study. What evidence out there would you look for to show that we were seeing ADE? When when the um, rate of hospitalizations. Uh, if you look at morbidity and, and you saw that vaccinated people were actually at higher risk of hospitalization and death than unvaccinated individuals, that would which be a we've clear, seen, which clear, we've seen in yeah. Israel, in Israel. Um, well, was, uh, we no? have to be careful there because there's a higher proportion of individuals who are hospitalized who are fully vaccinated. But that's partly just an artifact of the fact that most of the population has been vaccinated. vaccinated. So as the vaccination rate increases, I'll look again, but I thought that the numbers I, that I saw actually controlled for that, that it was, um, no. I'll, I'll, I'll send you what I've got. Um, yeah, no, I would I be, be interested in that. seeing that. Yeah, if, they, if, if they did control for that. Um, so to my, I, to my knowledge, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen a publication saying one way or the other, um, but of course they're claiming that it's the, the, vac- the fully vaccinated people are still at lower or risk protected, of hospitalization yeah. and death even though they, they constitute the greater proportion of hospitalizations. Um, so it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but, you know, if you think about it, it's just, that's just the numbers, that's the statistics, but um, I would like to see data on that. I mean, like, what is the risk? And so, I mean, it's interesting that the, just yesterday I was looking at um, a document from the uh, public health England, you know, the, the public health authority in, in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of, they don't show you the, they don't do the calculations, but they give you the data. And so I just took out my calculator, just started punching numbers and, and looking at um, like calculating a case fatality rate of, uh, of, you know, so deaths occurring in, with in people, you know, within 28 days was their, their, their thing, you know, deaths occurring within 28 days of, of, um, of diagnosis of, of, of diagnosis hospitalization. Yeah. I think it was of a positive test, positive test okay. for it, but specifically for Delta. Right. Um, and it's, you know, and they broke it down from uh, on 50 and under or under 50 and then 50 and over and then total. Right. And so for the under 50, um, this, the CFR, the case fatality rate was actually higher in the fully vaccinated than in the unvaccinated. Whereas when you went, when, when I did the yeah. calculation for the 50 and over, it was quite a lot higher for the unvaccinated. Hmm. So draw what conclusions you, you might with that. But yeah. Um, but then when you do the totals, it's also it was also the case that that the um, the fully vaccinated had a higher case fatality rate than the unvaccinated, which is interesting. The of course the case fatality rate. There's a lot of caveats that must come with the case fatality rate because it's not the infection fatality rate. We don't right. know how many people right. were infected. Right. Um, to be able to calculate right. kind of the infection fatality, but just looking yeah. at the, the numbers that they were providing and calculate, you can calculate the case fatality rate with them. They didn't do that, but, uh, but I just looked at the, the numbers and did that. Um, and so that was interesting to see that both for the under 50 population and the total population, 
right? Despite the the higher risk, evidently among the elderly population, um, the total was actually that the unvaccinated had a lower case fatality rate. Um, so there's, you know, there's data out there, but a lot of times it's like, it's just not put together in a way. It's like, you have to have people going in and like analyzing the data on their own yeah, um, to be able to kind yeah. of get this information out because yeah, I mean, I just don't know of the studies that are doing that, like with the Israeli data um, and whether, and that's a good question. Like, are we seeing, is there evidence for ADE coming out of Israel? I mean, for all I know, there may be, I haven't, seen it I, I can't point to a specific example of it right. um, but as you as you're suggesting it could be there and it just we just need to be able to I'll, kind of I'll send you, I'll send you what, I've, what I've seen but yeah, then also please. it's like how, how do you distinguish between <clears throat> whether what we're seeing is ADE or is or is the opportunity cost mm. or is maybe something else maybe um you know some other some other effect that that the vaccine is is I mean those two those are sort of the the two obvious ones but um, yeah I, well that would just require I think just um, doing those studies to be able to determine okay so yes you're right I mean so it, it might not be if we did see that I mean I said if we saw a, a higher risk of hospitalization and death for fully vaccinated people compared to unvaccinated that would be a strong indication of ADE but you're right there could be other explanations for it. Um, and so, I mean, they would just really need to do those lab studies and be able to see, because if, if it was ADE, they would be able to, to, to look into the body and see that, well, these, these antibodies, these non-neutralizing antibodies are actually helping the virus to enter the cells as opposed to stopping them and blocking them from entering the cells. Yeah, I mean, so why they, not they, just... they could determine that in the lab. Yeah. Um, it's just that, you know, they would have to, number one, we'd have to see the, the, the studies done on the, the risks. The relative risk and then you know it, once we did have that evidence we would they would have to do the, the kind of the lab study so both epidemiology and observational type studies and population data and you know like lab studies we would need both the in vivo and in vitro type studies to be done to be able to determine that i mean why not why not repeat the ferret studies you know repeat the ferret studies with these vaccines and yeah well that's another approach you know, they could they could do that um and then, you know, just it's reading just this morning, talking about in science and they were talking about Israel and it just it strike, strikes me at how is um, Eric Topol, I think was the guy who they quoted in the article describing Israel as it's so, it's so wonderful. We have this, this experiment ongoing, you know, and it's like, wait well, a second, cognitive right? dissonance much, right? <laughs> Why was the state of Israel founded again? Oh my God. Mass experiments on human. I mean, right. And, and here he was, and he was just like glorifying insanity. the fact that the Israeli population has become this mass human experiment. experiment. Yeah. And I'm just thinking without like, consent. Uh, it's just like, I, I just, I, if I was him, I would just be bowing my head in shame for having said something like that. But I mean, but yeah, it wasn't, it's like, they don't even, it's, it's just I mean, this cognitive disconnect, but like, so that's the case. I mean, they wow. really have, the, the vaccines have left the clinical trials, which by the way, um, you know, the clinical trials are ongoing, but they've essentially been unblinded. Right. And the control groups is there's no more have there been vaccinated no away. Yeah. And so we will never have that data. We will never have the data comparing yeah. long-term health outcomes yeah. between yeah. vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. They, they, that data will never exist now. Except for those have, of us who, who, you know, never signed up for the trials, but are, you know, out in the world, you know, the, the uncontrolled data will be there. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. The, 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 the trial, the experiment has moved from the clinical setting 
to mass vaccination in the population. We are now the guinea pigs. Yeah. Um, Israelis are now the guinea pigs. And they're openly openly saying that. I mean, they're openly saying like, oh, it's so great. We have Israel. To, 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 so we have this experiment going on in Israel. We can use the Israeli population as our subjects. I mean, that's this, just so yeah, the, wrong. The dissonance of that is just hard to, hard to take. It's hard to take. Um, that's the situation. Final question. Um, what response have you gotten for your book? What um, have you been banned anywhere? Have you been um, suspended? I have not yet um, experienced that. Uh, hopefully, I won't. Um, you know, I saw my, the first Amazon review I saw the other day uh, was a glowing five star review. So, I uh, encourage anyone who reads the book to nice. share your honest thoughts about it. Give it a, give it an honest review, and uh, hopefully, you like it. And we'll want to rate it five stars because it is it, it is again. It's not just Dr. Paul's story, which is an important, very enlightening story in and of itself, but it's, that's just like part of the big picture. And so the, the book really does give all kinds of, like, if you want to understand the vaccine issue, like if you want to understand yeah. what the debate really is all about, like, this is the book. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it provides all of that necessary background context, going back in history, you know, like talking about, um, you know, the CDC uh, with its, with its vaccine schedule throughout the nineties, um, exposing children to, uh, you know, um, cumulative levels of mercury in excess of the, the government's own safety guidelines, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it really gives all of that background context. Yeah. Well, and you talk about the, the 1986 act that 1986 that's... law. Yeah. All of that's in there. Um, I mean, I mean, it really made it as comprehensive as I could. It's in, in very, yet, I mean, not very long. I mean, it's not a very long. It's read. a, it's a short read. I only made, I, I, I read about a third of it and then had, had like a family emergency. So I had to stop, but it is very comprehensive, very short read. And I think this is, I think this is really one of the most important stories of our time. I mean, this that's is, the way I felt about it when it kind of it landed is. in my lap. I, that's exactly the way I felt about it. I was like, and I had other things going on. I had other articles already kind of underway, right. other projects, research projects that was going on. And I, I literally dropped everything. And I said, I have to do this. This is yeah. the story I have to tell right now. And, yeah. and I have to like, and I, I literally just shifted my whole focus away from everything else that was going on. And I dropped everything I was doing because that's exactly the way I felt about it. Um, and so hopefully that will come come through to, to the reader that, yeah, this is, this is one of the most important stories of our time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I will have yeah. links up and encourage people to buy it and read it. And um, yeah, I'm glad you did shove everything else aside because this is huge, hugely important. So well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Always good to talk to you. Yeah. Great talking to you.